Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. We are continuing a series here called Beyond the Signs. We are looking at six signs from the Gospel of John. And as we mentioned in previously, signs serve as a purpose. Uh, they guide us to something. And today we're going to read about a sign. We'll read about a miracle performed by Jesus and see what it means. Look at what is this sign telling us? What is it pointing to? All of us are on this journey called life. And God gives us signs to help us find our way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for giving us signs because you love us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to see, to hear, to see with the eyes of our heart, to hear inwardly your voice. And God, I pray that you would help us to respond with trust. Father, help us to listen, to respond to rely on you. And so, Lord, would you strengthen each person here in their trust and their relationship with you? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin uh, today's message, which comes from the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at chapter 5. I just want to introduce the setting to you before we read the scripture. Story happens at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda, Scripture says it had five covered porches. Some translations call them colonnades. This picture up here is, when you, when you think of five covered porches, sounds like a nice place. And I put this picture up here to just remind us of what a really nice pool would look like. This one is creative. It's in the shape of a guitar. I don't know if you can see it that well. My favorite pool is this next picture. This is our very own Tumon Bay. And I love this pool because um, it's free. <laughs> you can go there anytime you want, 24-7. It's an amazing place, unlimited supply. Has this self-maintenance system that is incredible beyond your imagination. And so when I think of nice pools, like maybe what you might imagine the pool of Bethesda to be, I, I think of places like these. But if you were to see the actual pool of Bethesda, it looks like this. There it is. After centuries of empires taking over Jerusalem and building their empires and using Jerusalem as a capital, they've built foundations on top of foundations on top of foundations. But when you think of a pool in ancient days, obviously it would have to be at the lowest point of the city. And so it's way down there at the bottom where you see that dark spot in the bottom middle of your screen. That's the pool of Bethesda. And... This is a pool that was located in the northern part of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. I'm going to show you a map, this next picture. This is a map of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. 
And I've circled in red there, the very top is the pool of Bethesda. And then next to it, just below it, is the Sheep Gate. And then just to give you a little orientation, over to the left, the red circle is Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified outside the temple. And so the pool of Bethesda, because it was by the Sheep Gate, remember in the temple they used to sacrifice animals. And so there was a place where they brought all the animals into the temple. And the pool of Bethesda uh, was not a nice place. It was a place where the animals drank water. Uh, Maybe they made a mess on their way in. The Bible also says that there there was a crowd of people who were paralyzed. There were invalids. There were blind people. Maybe some of them were there with their caretakers. Nothing like the guitar pool or Tumon Bay that we saw earlier. I mean, the place probably smelled. And so I just want you to picture, I'm just setting up the scene of what we're about to read as we look at this third sign in the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? So before we move on, we'll just stop there. I want to make a couple observations about this passage. Remember, we began this series when Jesus was in Cana. He turned the water into wine. After that, he made a trip into Samaria. And there he met the woman at the well. And she went into the town and began to witness and testify about this man. And the whole town came out to hear him. It's like they had a revival. They asked him if he would stay longer. They were hungry to hear what he had to say. When he was done, they said, we no longer believe because of what the woman said. We now believe because we have heard you, and we believe you are the Messiah. And that was an amazing time, amazing trip that he made over to Samaria. Then he came back into Galilee. Galilee, where it said, a prophet is not welcomed in his own home. And there he met the official son, who said, my son is ill. Please come with me and heal him. Jesus said, go, your son is well. The Bible says immediately the official believed and went on his way. Fifteen miles away, he got there the next day, and the servants came and said, it's okay, your son's well. He said, wow, amazing. Really, what time? They said, well, it was about the seventh hour. From 6 a.m. plus 7 is about 1 p.m. He goes, man, that's the same time that Jesus said, go, your son is well. And now he comes into Jerusalem, and he enters by the sheep gate, and he gets by the pool of Bethesda, And the most obvious observation to make is that a man is healed. I want to share with you a couple other observations. We just want to uh, make a side note here. Um, If you're reading from uh, some of your translations, uh, New King James, uh, maybe King James, if you're reading there, you'll notice that there's a verse in that translation that's not in the passage that we just read. I read from the New Living Translation. In... Some uh, modern translations, they leave out verse 4. Verse 4 is missing. I debated whether or not I would get into this because of our time, but I don't want anybody to 
kind of stumble if you're reading in another translation and you're thinking, what happened to verse 4? What happened to verse 4 is uh, many modern translations, uh, Bible scholars have found that verse 4 was, is not present in some of the older manuscripts. In fact, in all of the older manuscripts, it's not present. And so they've put it as a footnote in your Bible. You'll notice there's a little marking when you get to the end of verse 3. You can go down and read what verse 4 is. Verse 4, I'll just summarize it for you, says that people used to gather at the pool of Bethesda because they believed there was an angel of the Lord that periodically would come and stir the waters. And whoever got into the water first was healed. Now, that particular passage is not in the older manuscripts, and so it's left as a footnote. Why is it, why is it there then? Even as a footnote. If you go on to read in verse 7, verse 7 just begs for some explanation because Jesus, and we'll get there in a little bit, but Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be well? And he says, I can't because I have no one to carry me into the water when it bubbles up. Somebody else steps in in front of me. And if, and if verse 7 was all you had, which really it is in the older manuscripts, it raises all kinds of questions. It's like water bubbles up, people get in first, get healed. What is that all about? And so it's just begging for explanation. And um, this is just a, a guess on my part. I imagine scribes later in history, realizing that it's begging for explanation, may have wrote a note in the side margin of what people believed back then and why they did what they did. Why were all these people gathered at the pool of Bethesda? To try and help us understand. Now, some scholars believe that that was just folklore, just urban legend. We have lots of urban legend in our own cultures, do we not? Chamorro culture, Filipino culture, whatever culture you come from, there's lots of folklore in culture. And so this was to try and help readers understand why were the people gathering there? Just my personal opinion, um, as I read that text, I, I don't see any other precedent for it in Scripture. And it's my opinion that I think it, it, it too is urban legend as opposed to something that actually happened. So all of that, um, just to summarize uh, what verse 4 is about, now, if that shakes some of you up a little bit, let me just give you a little lesson in textual criticism. Textual criticism is a field in biblical study where scholars are able to compare manuscripts from, from antiquity to be able to construct the text. And there are 5,800 manuscripts in existence today for the Bible. That's an incredible amount of material to be able to study and to research and to be able to put together the picture of what happened. Just to give you a comparison, other ancient literature doesn't even compare in the number of manuscripts in existence today. For example, uh, Homer's Iliad has less than 500 manuscripts in existence today. So 500 compared to 5,800 is not even a comparison. But the point is this, there's plenty of evidence to be able to support the historical accuracy of the Bible as scholars are able to piece together the ancient writings. Having said that, 
Here's a little context to consider. Verse 4 is not about any topic in the Bible that is significant. It has nothing to do with the nature of God, has nothing to do with the nature of man or the relationship between the two. Having said that, it doesn't change anything we believe in the tenets of Christianity. So, the first observation, Jesus goes to a pool, somebody gets healed. Second observation, verse 4 is missing. We put that in perspective. Third observation is this. The Bible says that there was a crowd of people. Some translations say there was a multitude of people. So imagine people wanting to get well, wanting to get healed. Many of them there, the lame, the sick, the blind, the paralyzed, with their caregivers possibly. Keep that in mind that there was a big crowd of people there. That will become important a little bit later. We'll go on to verse 6 through 9. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? He said, I can't, sir. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. A man was healed, and he picked up his mat and walked. You know, we've read these stories so many times, they hardly amaze us anymore. But think about the lame man's perspective for the very first time after being lame for 38 years. What is it like to experience something like that, hear about it for the very first time? You know, it reminds me of when we got, uh, when, when you see a picture of the earth from the moon. You know, middle schoolers will see that picture and go, oh yeah, I've seen that before. But when it first came out, people were like, oh wow, look at that. And I want us to go back and put ourselves in the shoes of this lame man who had been in this condition for 38 years And what was it like for him? Familiarity can take away the awe. After 38 years, he probably lost all sense of hope. Would he ever get married? Would he have a job? Could he travel? Could he enjoy having a family? You know, all of that was probably something he let go a long time ago. And then one day, a stranger walks up to him and says, would you like to get well? What would you say? You know, just in that short passage right there, I think Jesus reveals three things that are significant. He reveals his knowledge, he reveals his compassion, and he reveals his power. The Bible says that Jesus knew he had been sick for a very long time. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows everything about each one of us. He knows your situation. He knows your condition. He knows your circumstances and what you're going through. Jesus knows everything. The other thing is he has compassion. He's moved by your situation. Knowing everything about us is good news only if Jesus has compassion. Only if he loves you. If he's mean, the last thing you want him to know is where you live. But the fact that he's good, 
then the fact that he knows everything about us is very good news indeed. Jesus reveals himself and works with an individual. You know, it's interesting that there was a crowd of people there, but he didn't have a mass healing. If you notice all the miracles that we've been talking about, Jesus is very humble in his approach. The very first one, when he turned water into wine, there was no big announcement to all the important people at the wedding. Only the servants knew. And even then, he didn't kind of announce it with pompous. He let them discover it by themselves and have this revelation. Then he went back into Galilee. He He healed the official son, just one man, lived 15 miles away, didn't really get confirmed until he got home the next day, and just the servants and the family knew, and just they believed. And now here he is, one lame man in the crowd. Jesus is not into crowds, he's into individuals. He's into you and me. He cares about you and what's happening in your life. So here is this man. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. By all accounts, he has no qualifications for a miracle. Sometimes we say, well, you have to desire it first, or you have to have faith. He doesn't even know who Jesus is, much less have faith in him. This is just raw compassion on Jesus' part to help some. The the only qualification he has is 38 years of need. That's his qualification. Jesus does a work He does works in our lives, too. Sometimes we have a need. We want him to fix it. Jesus wants to work with us, but sometimes the solution isn't what we expect. He cares about your need, but his therapy is not always what you want. I remember years ago, I was in a season where I said, God, would you enlarge my heart? I was asking God to teach me how to love people. I had no idea what I was asking. I went through a 10-year curriculum that was very difficult. God was removing all kinds of stuff out of me in order to get me into a condition where he could do, even begin to do a work in my heart. The point is this. Jesus cares about your need, but his therapy is not always what you want. Sometimes it can be long and hard. So he reveals his knowledge, he reveals his compassion, he also reveals his power. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. You can go to the next slide. Immediately, he stood up and he walked. Now, I think John enjoys being able to write this word immediately. I mean, he did that earlier with the official son. It says, immediately he believed and he went. He went back home to go check on his son, believing that his son was well. Only Jesus has the power to be able to do something instantly. You know, if you go to a doctor, they might be able to reattach nerves that have been separated. And so you could have neurological repair. Jesus could have come to the lame man and said, okay, well, the synapses are working now, but you're going to have to undergo years of professional therapy to be able to rebuild muscles. They're not even there after 38 years of either use it or lose it. Is that what happened? No. It says he jumped up and immediately he was ready to go. He picked up his mat. He could even carry stuff. This revealed God's power. Let's move on to verse 10. 
So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. So this is interesting. Jesus singles out this one guy. He heals him. And then it says he disappears into the crowd. Could you imagine what, it, what would happen if he identified himself? And yeah, see this guy standing here? I'm the one who did it. Man, he would get swamped with people. Hundreds of people there who had tremendous need. And Jesus, it says he slipped away. And so what does that mean? Was this just a hit and run, Jesus? Is this just a random miracle? What are you going to do now? Go over to the synagogue and maybe teach? And okay, that was there. And what's going on here? Verse 14. He went to the temple, which is where Jesus found him. A good thing. It says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning. Or something even worse may happen to you. And then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus slipped away into a crowd to avoid the pandemonium. Then he goes and he finds him later. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is into people. Okay, he went to the wedding at Cana. He was wanting to reveal something to the servants there. He went to Samaria to find a woman at the well. He came back into Galilee to find an official whose son wasn't well. And now he went to the pool of Bethesda and he finds a man who's been lame for 38 years. Jesus is targeting people. And he does that with us. You may recall yourself when you knew God was trying to get your attention. He was looking for you. Jesus finds him. And he says, go and sin no more. You know, a changed life is evidence of a relationship with God. Did the lame man change? Well, actions speak louder than words. Immediately after that, it says he went to the Jewish leaders and he told them, Jesus is the one who healed me. He instantly became a witness. He went and began to testify of the one who had healed him. He became a witness. This is the story of Jesus healing a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And so, what does it mean for us? Jesus said to the lame man, would you like to be well? That's an important question. Would you like to be well? Turn to your neighbor. Ask your neighbor, would you like to be well? Church, Jesus is still asking us the same question today. Would you like to be well? What's your condition? Do you have a medical condition? Achy joints, headaches, diabetes, an old injury? Maybe the doctor said you shouldn't have children anymore? What's your condition? What's your situation? Do you struggle with fears? What are you afraid of? What holds you back? Are there conflicts inside? Are you conflicted with yourself? You have conflicting lifestyles? Jesus says, would you like to be well? Is there conflict outside? 
Is there tension in relationships? Is there stress? Is there broken relationships? Do you feel stuck in a financial rut? Are you stuck in debt? You know, the man's answer is classic. He said, I can't because there's no one to help me. You know, that answer is so common. I can't because my school loans did not qualify for loan forgiveness. The doctor doesn't know what to do. I can't because my counselor couldn't help my marriage. I can't because money can't fix my family. I can't because the teacher doesn't stop the other students. I can't because my dad's not around. And the list goes on. There's no one to help me. You know, the lame man didn't even know who he was talking to. Jesus said to the man, get up and walk. And Jesus can change you. He can change your condition. When you experience a miracle, uh, don't stop at the miracle. When you experience a sign, make sure you don't settle for the sign. Your miracle points to something greater. And the something greater is your relationship with God. And the evidence of a relationship with God is a changed life. And Jesus said to the lame man, you've been made well. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Miracles in and of themselves, they don't change us. They don't. Repentance is what changes the heart. Jesus said, see you are well now, go and sin no more, or something worse may happen to you. Now, a lot of people read that and they're like, I don't like that. I mean, I think in modern day gospel ministry, it should be all about the promises, all about the goodness. I'm going to be rich. But that's not what happens here in this story. Why did Jesus say something worse may happen to you? I mean, think about that statement for a moment. What could possibly be worse than 38 years of being an invalid? What could possibly be worse? I believe Jesus, I believe Jesus was saying to him, I've shown myself to you. Now, how are you going to respond? Will you acknowledge me or will you ignore me? I think his eternal destiny was hanging in the balance. Once God proves himself to you, the real question is, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to acknowledge him as Lord? Are you going to surrender to him? When Jesus does a miracle in your life, know this. You are made well to stay well forever. He's not interested in the here and now just in this life. He has an eternal perspective. And there's something more important than our physical healing. There's an important question we need to talk about regarding this miracle. This man who was lame for 38 years, in a moment he began to walk. The question is this, 
if Jesus loves people and he has the power to heal this man instantly, what about everybody else that was in the crowd? What about all the people that needed to be healed? What about all the other people at the pool that day? The answer is in Jesus' conversation when he went and found him later in the temple. Jesus went and found him. He said, you've been made well. You might have thought this was about healing, but it's not. Jesus comes to him with the follow-up lesson. He says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You thought this was about healing, but there's something more important. Here's why. HIV is a terrible thing. Cancer is a terrible thing. My mom died from cancer. God bless her. She knew the Lord. But it was a grievous thing to watch her lose her life. All of these things are terrible things. But I tell you, sin is a billion times worse than cancer or HIV or anything else you can think of. Because it's not 38 years of suffering. It's 38 billion ages of years in eternity without God. And Jesus came to say it's not just about what happens here in this life. It's about what happens afterward as well. Yes, he heals people. And we see that in the Bible. And we even see it here today in, mo- in our modern day. We see Jesus healing people. But by and large, he doesn't heal everybody. His main purpose for coming to the earth was to die on the cross and to deal with something much more hideous than any physical condition we could ever experience. And that is sin. It's a terrible, evil thing that destroys. Steals, kills, and destroys. Jesus heals, yes. The Lord is patient toward us. What happens if we get healed? What happens if God uses us to heal somebody else? And then that's all they ever experience. Is Jesus interested in just helping somebody be perfectly healthy for an eternity of judgment? No, he's not. And when we help people, if we just give them money, if we just give them food, if we just give them a ride and that's all we give them, we haven't really helped them. The Lord is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. To turn away from self and to turn toward God who is able to save us from eternal judgment. Now, most of you have already received Jesus and you've already received his forgiveness. If we help somebody physically, but don't tell them about him, then we don't really love them. We don't really love them. Or maybe we don't really believe what will happen in eternity. I began this message by saying signs lead us to something. John chapter 20, verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. 
But these are written so that you may continue to believe, continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life and that you will have power by believing in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your knowledge, your compassion, your power. Lord, thank you that you reveal all these things through signs. You reveal these things through your words. God, I pray that you would enable us to go from here today and to hold this in our heart. Lord, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we have, Lord, needs Lord, and you do promise if we put you first, if we put you first, you'll meet those needs. But Lord, help us not to keep our eyes here on the temporal, but to keep our eyes on you, who you are and what you're doing. And so Lord, I pray that by your word that you would encourage each person here today in trusting you. I pray that you would encourage each one of us to be able to rely on you, to not put our trust in ourselves, but to turn in our hearts toward you for life. God, I thank you for each person here and what you're saying to them. And if you would keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite you just to take a minute to just ask the Lord God, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do? And if you would just, in the privacy of your heart and mind, take a few moments to be still and to be quiet and just listen and ask God, what is it that you're saying to me today? And as you're listening, I want to give you some time to respond. I pray with faith, with trust. Father, thank you for each person here. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're saying. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to trust you in whatever step you may be calling us to take, whatever assignment you may be giving us. Father, help us to trust. I ask that you would build faith among us, Lord, that we would be a people of faith. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'd like to address another group in the room. You may be here today and hearing about the relationship with God, and that has piqued your interest. In fact, that's been something you've been thinking about for a while. And today you're here not just because you're doing a church thing, but you're seeking. You're wanting to experience God. And if that describes you, I want to give you a chance to be able to respond to him. If you've never made a formal choice to invite God into your life, if you never made an actual decision to say, yes, God, I want to open up to you and let you come into my life, then I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. It's just a matter of expressing your decision to God, which is what we call prayer. And so, in a moment, I'll pray. And I want to invite you to pray along with me. God will hear you. But before we do, I'd like to know who I'm praying with. 
And so if this sounds like something that you would like to do, then I want to invite you to go ahead and look up. And when my eyes meet yours, I'll know that we're going to pray together. And so if that describes you, go ahead and look up at this time and we'll pray together in a moment. Okay, yes, I see you there. Anybody else? Yes, okay. The three of you, yes, I see you there. Any, yes, here, I see you. Anybody else? Yes, I see you. Yes, okay. The two of you, that's great. Anybody else? Okay, I see you there. Don't want to miss anybody. Yes, they're in the back. Anybody else? Okay, let's, let's pray. My Father in heaven, I'm here before you and I'm acknowledging that I need you. And so today I'm making a choice. I'm opening up my life and I'm asking you to show yourself to me. Lord, I'm asking you to help me in this thing called life because, to be honest, it's been a struggle. It hasn't been working so well my way and I... I'm wanting you to show me your way, a new way. I ask that you would give me a new start. Lord, I realize there are things in my life that I'm not proud of, and I I ask you to forgive me. Things that have hurt me, hurt others. I thank you for Jesus, who died for me. These very things that come to mind, he died for me. And right now, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your spirit, receive the spirit of your son in my life. And so if you're praying with me right now, I just want to give you that moment to let him come in, trust by faith God is here, and let him enter into your life and be one with you. You're opening the door of your heart, and he promises if you do, he will come in. And let him do that now and receive his forgiveness. Just receive it. The blood of Jesus is for you. He came to remove all the guilt, all the shame, any condemnation. This is his amazing gift of love. And just receive it now and be made new and be made whole and be made well. You are made well to stay well forever. And Jesus has made this possible. And Father, we thank you for your amazing gift. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.